The thought of being eaten by a lion is certainly terrible, but it's so tangible, so lacking in imagination, that it falls short of being the true stuff of nightmares. But a pinworm slithering at your backside in the dark of night to release her eggs, a process which makes your anus itch so ferociously that you scratch and scratch, hopelessly seeking relief, while pinworm eggs amass in your fingernails only to find their way back to your or your friend's mouth the next time you eat or scratch your beard as you ponder life's great mysteries? Now that, that is a truly awful and horrifying thought. But such is the world of parasites. As part of our larger investigation of symbiosis, we look here at the grotesque, fascinating, and complex world of parasites, parasitoids, and micro-predators. Welcome to The Single Acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's one thing when you've got seasonal allergies or the sniffles. It's another entirely when you've been coughing for days, running a fever, and your nose is glued to the tissues. Really, Lou? Glued? Too soon. When you're down for the count, over-the-counter medicine just won't do. You need something stronger to get you back in the race. Trot to your doctor today and ask about a little horse, the little cough drop that goes a long neigh. Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to The Single Acorn. I am your host, Professor Iwiki, and I am here with... With Glenn. I am your person listening to the host, Glenn. <laughs> Great. Uh... Glenn, so uh, we brought you on here today as our resident expert on parasites. So... <laughs> because I have so many? Thanks a lot, Teague. <laughs> Personal hygiene, I thought we were going to keep out of the show. You do have a lot of practical experience, uh, but you also have a lot of professional experience in the field. It says here in your bio that you're a hedge fund manager at Trematode, Nematode, and Cestode. That's correct. Three toads brings more profit. Sorry, motto. An <laughs> ancient proverb, presumably. Yeah, I think it's translated from the Greek. It doesn't translate perfectly. Yeah. Um, yes, those are all parasites, right? Sure, they are. I should do more research into my own company's name. I think maybe you were in a like a top partner, so you didn't, you know, yeah, work directly with the, partner, the toads in the industry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So uh, we're going to talk about parasites, and this is a continuation of our discussion of symbioses. And so, yeah, to start us off, so we've already talked about a few different types of symbiosis. So we talked about mutualisms, we talked about commensalisms, and amensalisms. And sort of just to back up for our listeners, what is a symbiosis? Oh, it is a relationship, Teague. I mean, I know this because I've had some relationships in my life come and go. Um, but it's, I believe it's an enduring relationship between two species. And they sort of co-evolved, in a sense, to have this relationship that may be beneficial to one or both of these species. It could be beneficial or... Or it could just be neutral. Neutral. Or, or it could be harmful. <laughs> it could be slightly harmful. It can't be slightly neutral, though. Things can, cannot be slightly neutral. Yeah, so we started off talking about the positive end of things. So mutualisms are where both species are uh, benefited by the, the relationship. And then commensalism, where one species benefits and the other is uh, relatively neutral in the interaction or in the relationship. And then amensalism is where we started to shift into the darker side of the way the in which side. organisms interact. So this is the darkest side. Parasites, is that what you're, you're moving towards here? This is, yeah, this is where it starts to get uh, dark. So what we're going to talk about this episode and then the next episode are different types of exploitation. So where one species, so one of the symbionts, is exploiting the other symbiont. And so in a parasitic relationship, which we'll talk about now, uh, the exploitation 
typically does not result in the death of the other uh, symbiont. Um, and so the two different symbionts here that we'll talk about, just to get some terminology out of the way, we have one, which is our parasite, and that is the one that is feeding on and living on or living in the other symbiont, which in the parasitic relationship would be called a host. The host. Yeah. So if we back up a little bit, you said that you have a lot of experience with parasites in a direct way. So <laughs> do you have any actual examples of parasites that you've had or interacted with uh, in a direct way? Well, haven't we all, Teague? I mean, when we go outside and enjoy the beautiful bounty that is nature, sometimes things like the mosquitoes and the ticks suck upon our blood, for example. Um, you know, and then I don't know if you mean this more in the relationship type. Um, <laughs> I do have an uncle that calls me up and asks for money, which is a pretty bad choice. Choosing me as relative. I think I'm pretty far down the list. And I don't think of him as Although a as a site. former hedge fund manager, I mean, <laughs> that people probably assume that you're loaded. I have to remind him, junior partner, didn't even know about the toads. So he calls, but, you know, he, he jokes around. He gives me something back for that. So I feel like it's more of a, a mutualism in a sense, an emotional mutualism. So... With parasites, and we'll, we'll sort of dive into this a little bit later, is um, under the general umbrella of parasitism, um, there are parasites proper, which we'll define in a second, and then we'll talk about later, there are micro-predators, and there are also parasitoids. And so a micro-predator is something that jumps from one host to another, and it doesn't live any significant amount of its, uh, or doesn't spend one of its life stages on a single host. So mosquitoes and um, ticks sort of uh, will jump from one host to another uh, within a single life stage. So with uh, or with mosquitoes, it's the adult females, and they'll go from you to your friend to uh, potentially a pigeon or a beaver or a toad, and so they can jump from host to host throughout their adult life stage. Do mosquitoes bite toads? Is that a thing? Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, a few years ago, I, I built a pond in my backyard and uh, specifically for toads. I have a, there's a toad breeding a toad pond. pond. Wow. Yeah, about a quarter mile away from my house, which was a little bit too far for me. So I <laughs> built one in my backyard and I was filming one of the males uh, trilling. They have this long yes, kind of trilling toad. And I was filming it and then I was, uh, I brought it back and I was looking at the footage and editing together a short video. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a toad uh, or there's a mosquito sucking the toad's blood. And yeah, so amphibians can definitely, I mean, a lot of amphibians are spending a lot of their time in water. And so there isn't, you know, there aren't mosquitoes there inside the water. The larvae are in the water. And, but the adults, once they emerge are, you know, terrestrial or airborne. So they're not able to get at aquatic species. But certainly when amphibians are out of the water, they are susceptible to micro-predators. Well, one would imagine the amphibians are eating a lot of mosquito larvae, right? So there's sort of a revenge-type factor. Maybe yeah. Sweet, yeah. sweet revenge. You ate my babies. I, are there animals that have skin impervious to mosquitoes? I know where this is a bit off-topic, but, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, skin is designed to keep potential pathogens, which are pathogens are types of parasites that they present themselves as symptoms as your body is trying to shed the parasites out of it um, or off of it. But yeah, so one of the things that's a big challenge for parasites is you have to 
find a host. And then once you have a find a host, you have to either find your way inside the host or if you feed on the outside of the host, you have to be able to find a way of boring through the skin, which can be a challenge. You know, our epidermis is not perfect, but it's definitely really good at providing uh, some sort of buffer from fungal spores and from uh, mosquitoes and ticks not super well. But if you were something like a turtle and 90% of your exterior is a hard outer shell, then that makes it much, much harder. Um, there are some, there are these things called uh, forid wasps that will, they're uh, parasitoids of fire ants, and they've actually been brought in to be used as a control. And they can lay their eggs because the ovipositor of the female is small enough and sharp enough that it can pierce through the shell of the ant. But then the larva of the wasp will develop inside the ant and it gets to a point where it's uh, too large to squeak out through one of the cracks in the exoskeleton of its host insect, the ant. And so what it has to do is it has to release an enzyme that digests chitin which is the uh, main com like structural component of the carapace of the ant. And so uh, skin, shells, uh, they're all protections that are hopefully effective for the uh, animal that has those to keep out predators uh, or keep out parasites. Bark is the same thing on trees. So one of the trees that we have here in the Northeast is American beech, and American beech is susceptible to a disease called um, beach blight. No, beach scale. I think it's beach scale disease, beach bark scale disease. Beach bark and disease, yeah, it. and this is something that's spread by these tiny little insects called scales that are, they act like mosquitoes. So they have a little proboscis that they're able to bore through the bark of the beech tree because beech has such extremely thin um, bark. And so they can just drill in and suck out the sap. And when they do that, they happen to inject the spores from this fungus, ne Nectria, which then causes a whole bunch of problems that ultimately results in the death of um, the, the tree, or at least the above ground uh, part of the tree. As always, Teague, nice stories. I have to say the first one with the chitin deserve, uh, dissolving wasp larva, it's kind of spectacularly gross story I think our listeners may have come for in this parasite episode. I I should I I need to clarify. Uh, it's a wasp, not a not. Or sorry, it's a fly, not a wasp. The oh, okay. forehead flies. Yeah. Still spectacularly gross. Either yeah. way, I would say. Yeah. So I, I guess we could back up because we started uh, going on these different tangents that touched on some of the broader categories. So if we back up and define a parasite, so a parasite is an organism that typically is smaller than its host. It reproduces uh, much faster than its host, and it feeds on a single host for, again, the duration or most of the duration of one of its life stages, so either in a larval form or, or an adult form, and it doesn't kill the host in the process of feeding on it. So it sort of siphons off small amounts of nutrients over the course of that the host's life. Um, but it doesn't kill it. So it EO keeps Wilson, the host alive. it keeps the host alive. It's to its benefits that the host stays alive long enough for the parasite to fulfill or fulfill, not fulfill, but to live out that section of its life history. So EO Wilson calls this, uh, or describes this as predators that are eating prey in units of less than one. All right. <laughs> whereas a, whereas a predator would eat the, or at least kill 
take down kill uh, the animal or the organism that it's hunting and that results in the death of that animal and then it eats either most or all of its prey. But it's done the entire unit one of killing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so parasites are, uh, the, the host will stay alive um, with parasitoids, which is a maybe less efficient form of parasitism. I don't want to say less efficient, but uh, it results in the ultimate death of the host, but the host stays alive long enough uh, while the the parasite is feeding off of it. So that it can reproduce. It's interesting. So these were like the standard four or five qualities of a parasite. One of them is it reproduces faster than its host. It's like a race. Reproduce the fastest. If you want to qualify as a parasite. If you were, so everything, every symbiotic relationship is an evolutionary arms race. So there's this idea in biology of the, it's called the Red Queen hypothesis. So are you familiar with the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland? Um, she was not the one who chopped off everyone's heads. That was Queen of Hearts. Yeah, that I, that's her. Hearts are red. Oh, that was her? Yeah. yeah. So she says that you have to uh, keep running just to stay in place. And so that's essentially how biology works is that you have to keep evolving fast enough so that your predator doesn't out-evolve you and become more efficient at killing you than you are at avoiding it or running away. Or if you're in a mutualistic relationship, which we talked about earlier, is not these organisms that have this amicable relationship, but that are both, it's mutual exploitation. So they're both trying to get something from the other one. And if you're both trying to get something out of the other individual in that in relationship, then you have to constantly evolve to stay on par with the other symbiont um, to not get overexploited. And mutualism can turn into parasitism. It's important to remember with parasitism that this is a, a life history strategy. It's not necessarily a taxonomic group. So this isn't like uh, like birds would be a taxonomic group. But there are a bunch of different life history strategies within birds, and some of them are actually uh, parasites, um, like oxpeckers. Those are the types of birds that uh, will feed on these large game animals yes. in Africa. I love oxpeckers, yes. Yeah. They, uh, clean, they cleanse, right? They, don't they cleanse the animal that they're riding upon? The that's, ox? Sort of, that's sort of the... the sort of more classic or maybe outdated understanding of how they oh dear. they were like a classic example of a mutualism and so right. there are um oxes or giraffes or whatever else uh that get parasites uh ectoparasites so parasites that live on the outside of an animal's body and these oxpeckers these little birds would come along and they would clean off the uh the parasites that were living on the outside of these animals bodies and they would also around uh infected areas around like if they had an open Wounds. wound or something would... then the oxpecker would feed around the outside of that and clean up the wound and it would be wow. this wonderful service so A this nurse. was this yeah. service the zebra. they were providing to service industry animal basically exactly yeah and it turns out that uh, it's not so simple that, yeah, sure, they're doing that to a certain degree, but in a lot of cases, they were actually causing more harm than they were uh, providing a service or a benefit to the host. And so as they were feeding, you know, if you're feeding on, it's really easy to turn meat into meat, right? So if you're a carnivore, it's easy to assimilate the nutrients that you're eating. Whereas if you're an herbivore, you're turning a tree into 
uh, platypus or <laughs> whatever other it takes, animal. It takes more work. Right. Yeah. And so if you're an oxpecker and you're, you know, a, a bird, uh, a vertebrate that's feeding on another vertebrate, it's not that hard to turn that meat into your own uh, biomass. And so oxpeckers that are feeding on open wound sites, oh, you know, while I'm here, I'll eat these ectoparasites, but I might as well take some nutrients for take myself. Take a little bit of the wound. I yeah. have to say in my service industry jobs, that was probably a bit similar to that causing a bit more harm than good sometimes you can forget orders when i was a waiter sometimes i'd eat them a little bit of them they won't notice turned out they yeah. did yeah um, yeah you can only skim so much time. off the top you before have, somebody you have to starts be careful to how much you skim yeah probably the oxpeckers as well yeah um so in talking about oxpeckers uh i mentioned a couple of different or i mentioned ectoparasites so ectoparasites are so if you're a parasite you can live on the outside of an organism, you can live on the inside, or you can be one of these sort of mesoparasites and live kind of at the interface between the inside wow, and the, the outside surface, of the animal. The boundary. Yeah. So uh, ectoparasites. Um, so oxpeckers probably wouldn't, they would be micropredators. So maybe a subset of parasites in general. Um, but could you think of another, uh, an ectoparasite? Another parasite that lives on the outside of its body, outside yeah. of its host's body. Yeah, but it stays there. Um, well, I was thinking like <clears throat> a lamprey, maybe like sucks onto the outside of a fish, just stays there, sucks its blood. Seems kind of ecto. Maybe that's yeah. meso though, because it's on the surface. No, no, no. That's right. Yeah. So ecto, ecto means on the outside. Um, so meso, the uh, a, a great example of uh, a mesoparasite in the sort of middle zone would be something like uh, Cudarebra, which are the bot flies, and there are tons of different species of bot flies. And um, I have a, a horrible <laughs> story uh, with that's our good. our mutual. That's what our listeners came for with the parasite episode. <laughs> yeah. Let it let so, it out with our mutual friend Sam uh so oh. uh when Sam used to live with me uh we were I had been collecting a bunch of cattails to thatch this uh primitive hut that I was making and uh when I was doing that I was storing all of the cattails in my garage and I went into my garage to get something else and when I went in there the cattails kind of shivered and or quivered and, <laughs> and made this you. little rustling noise wow. and so I looked over and there was just sort of this like furry brown mass in the cattails and it was sort of heaving up and down sort of labored breathing and so i went over and i looked at it and there was just something like throbbing on the (laughs) on the the surface of it or like kind of on the surface and i ran inside and i got sam and i was like sam you gotta come look at this i have no idea what i'm seeing because it was just a small little like maybe three inch circle of fur and in the middle of it was this sort of olivey green brown uh i just remember it being sort of like this segmented casing on it that was kind of pulsing and it was chewed in it was like in the middle of this furry patch so we went back in and we try it uh we were going to try and catch the animal it was a a woodchuck that was in our garage and we're going to try and catch it and then get a closer look at whatever was going on and so we went to get it and then it wound up like running out of the garage and going underneath and we never saw it again and i didn't figure out later uh until later what it was and it turns out it's one of these bot flies 
So bot flies are types of flies, and so the adults will fly around and they will lay their eggs on just like the outside edge of a nest or a burrow or an animal trail. And I've read conflicting things about this. The uh, One of the reports I had read a long time ago, but I haven't seen it corroborated in other places, is that the eggs are sensitive to heat. And when an animal moves along the trail or the nest, um, the egg will crack open in uh, when it comes in contact with the animal's body heat. And then it'll crack open and the uh, larva will spring up in the air and latch on. I don't think that's actually how it happens. I'm pretty sure what happens is the eggs are laid on the animal and they'll get stuck in the claws or in the fur as the animal moves by. And then the body heat will cause the casing of the egg or the larva to continue to develop and crack open the egg. So then it'll uh, work its way in through... uh, It doesn't have to burrow in. So some insects or some parasites will have to burrow in through the skin. These go in through a pore. So either through your nostrils, your anus, your mouth. uh, And then they'll wind up into the layer, like the subcutaneous layer. So the layer just below your skin. And then once they're there, they do have chewing mouth parts, but they'll chew their way out partially. So they'll chew open a hole in the skin so that they have access to oxygen. Oxygen. Couldn't they just stay like near the pore they go into? Get some air that way. Seems nicer. Well, I'm not sure. I'd really want it. Well, so if you, yeah, I mean, if you're right at the nose, the animal might have access to pull you out. If you're in the mouth, then maybe you get. It's a better strategy. I take it back. I was just thinking of my own needs. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. As a host, you. I always thought like if I could just put a bag of blood up outside of my backyard and the mosquitoes could feed on that all summer long if i just made a deal with them that they can't suck my own blood it'd be fine you tried walking around with just a bag of your own blood like as a backpack or on your shoulder (laughs) yeah (laughs) that might be a a good middle ground um but parasites are not great at making deals with their house you just smear it all over your face and then they would just slap it it up as opposed to yeah yeah. (laughs) they might not be able to lick um Mm. you might need a thick coating yeah, so so anyway, so these uh the the botfly chews this hole so it has ox- access to oxygen because that can be one of the challenges that an endoparasite, a parasite that lives inside its host, uh would face is that it doesn't have access to oxygen. So back to ectoparasites, so you mentioned lampreys, and this is a great example of a vertebrate species that is a parasite, and so as adults they'll latch on to fish. So they're generalists, they'll latch on to a bunch of different types of fish in whatever waterway they're in and they'll slowly feed on it so they have these circular mouth parts with all these that act in sort of this rasping fashion so they'll latch on and then all these dozens of teeth will sort of slowly scratch the surface and create this little hole in the skin of the animal and then they'll just slowly siphon off nutrients from the blood is that similar to the way a leech would work or is it different just so i can have my nightmares i want them to be scientifically accurate tonight (laughs) Yeah, uh, I I don't know if lamprey have anticoagulants in their saliva, but leeches have anticoagulants and they have a numbing agent in their saliva. And so they are feeding on hosts that have limbs that can potentially remove them. Okay, so um, short term, they sort of get in and out, right? They I just imagine with like a fish. Yeah, so so leeches are, are micro predators they're not parasites proper but with a lamprey they're attaching onto fish 
which don't have limbs, and they can't really scratch themselves. They can't just swim next to a rock and try to bang it off. Yeah, so imagine they don't necessarily need to have, like, a numbing agent. And they also attach for, you know, a prolonged period of time, whereas a leech uh, will attach for a short little bit and then will detach. And so having an anticoagulant that speeds up the feeding process uh, and then also having the numbing agent prevents an animal from uh, just, like, swatting them off. So what would be the advantages of being an ectoparasite? So we have ecto, ecto means outside, ectoparasites, and then endoparasites, uh, endo means inside. So what are the advantages of being an ectoparasite? You mentioned the oxygen. I suppose it's easier to move around, you know, if you get a host that's not so great for you. Maybe you can leave, find another one. Probably hard to do that if you're stuck inside an improper host. Maybe your host dies, you can go somewhere else, which has happened to me a couple times in my Airbnb experience that I don't want to go into. Yeah, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I made that up. I feel terrible now. Airbnb is a great company. They're one of my sponsors. Um, So, yeah, I'm sure there are many other ones, but it feels like a more mobile existence. A little more choice. I guess not. I mean, are you saying most endoparasites are outside for a while, but then they get, get inside? But I'm sure there's some endoparasites that spend their whole life cycle more or less inside an animal, or most of it. Yeah, so uh, if you're an ectoparasite, uh, you don't have to get inside, and getting inside can sometimes be challenging. I mean, you do have to pierce through the skin or have some other way of getting access to nutrients that are internal. You're on the outside, and like you mentioned, if the host dies, so hosts are dying for all sorts of reasons. If they have enough parasites, it can compromise their immune system, it can compromise their ability to absorb Uh, nutrients. Like if you have a tapeworm or like Giardia, you can't. I think it's, you can't like uptake fats or something like that. And so you have all these different problems that limit your ability to compete and survive in your environment. Uh, So hosts are dying for all sorts of reasons. Parasite overload might be one of them. And so if your host dies and you're stuck on the inside, then that could be problematic. Or you get ingested by another animal and you can't make your way out to a new host. But do most endoparasites, sorry to skip ahead to them. They fascinate me. Most of them at some point are going to emerge from their host to reproduce or have a part of their life cycle that's outside before they go back in. Or would many of them stay in for multiple generations? They have to have at least one life stage that seeks out a new host, right? So it might be just the eggs that are dispersed. Um, It might be a larval stage or it might be an adult stage uh, that's the disperser of the organism from one host to another. There are some parasites that as long as the host is alive, they can just continue to reproduce internally um, until the host dies and then they'll... But they have to have a strategy. They have to have an exit strategy. An exit strategy, yeah. Yeah, so looking at, I mean, looking at endoparasites, it's the exact opposite. So whatever the advantages are for being an ectoparasite uh, often are the disadvantages for being an endoparasite. So uh, there are some other ones. So if you're an ectoparasite, we didn't mention this, but if you're on the outside of an individual, then that individual, like you'll see, I was paddling on the Winooski River near, which is the river near my house that drains into Lake Champlain. And I came around this bend and there were probably about 40 or 50 turkey vultures that were all on this gravel bar in the wow. middle of the river, and That's they were all standing there with their wings out uh, and facing away from the or facing towards the sun. 
And so they turkey vultures don't have feathers on their head. They have dark feathers um, on the rest of their body. And so when they're um, when they're feeding, they don't get meat and potential parasites on the feathers on their head. So the head gets cleaned off much quicker than if it gets stuck in the feathers. And then the feathers on their body when they're facing the sun are, um, they heat up much quicker than like a white feather would. So and it so burns the parasites? It basically burns, burns the parasites. And there are other ones, uh, other birds like cormorants that have these little, um, I think they're called like pectinate I, I don't remember they have these like a uh, comb like structures on their toes so they can groom parasites ectoparasites off wow. of their feathers a parasite comb yeah so if you're on the outside it's easy for easier for a, a host to rid themselves of those parasites whereas if you're on the inside uh that you is not necessarily it, a problem yeah you can't put a comb down your throat very easily you can't for our listeners down there don't try it one of my favorite examples that's sort of an extreme uh, way of dealing with parasites is uh, sea cucumbers, which are marine species, and they, uh, marine species of animal, not a uh, cucumber, <laughs> um, and, but they look like cucumbers, some of them, they're a bunch of different species, but they're sort of these gross inflated cucumbers, and they uh, can get parasite overload, and one of the things they're really great at doing is everting their internal organs, so their basically their digestive tract, and spewing it out into the environment, and then regrowing a new one. And so wow. they can do this in two ways. One is if they have parasite overload. So if they're there are a bunch of endoparasites in their digestive tract, they can just shed it and then develop a new one that's free of parasites. And they can also do this sort of like a possum plain dead where it emits this super foul odor that is a deterrent to predators, and predators so also like, do i don't want to a... mess with that that thing is no crazy way. it just got its out at me and yeah. it might have parasite overload and it's not even a real cucumber despite its name <laughs> right who knows what else it's lying about um wow that is a strategy just get rid of your guts and grow new ones Apparently not that common a strategy, I'm guessing. No, not not a common strategy. Um, so uh, with us, we are not obviously able to just shed our digestive tract, but we have mechanisms for controlling internal parasites or endoparasites. So we have an immune system that is pretty efficient at detecting uh, exogenous or uh, foreign bodies that enter our um, our internal systems. So our immune system uh, can seek out potential parasites and attack them and shed them. And then we often see this sort of manifest as different symptoms of disease where if you're like sneezing or if you get a temperature, your body's trying to bake whatever like the vultures, pathogen you have. Internally. Yeah, but you're trying to do that internally. And I've heard now since we're in the time of COVID, I've heard that bats, because bats run at a higher temperature than people that some of their parasites are adapted to higher temperatures. And so if we have a fever from a parasite that has some sort of origin in a bat, we can't kill it off as easily. Oh, interesting. There's... Uh, could be a rumor. Oh, I wish I could remember the specific species. Um, I'll put a link in, a, in the show notes. But there's... Uh, so honeybees have a type of wasp that is a uh, predator that or a thief. So it'll... So it'll come and find a honeybee colony, and then it'll fly back to its wasp colony and say, hey, there are a bunch Yikes. of bees, let's go eat them. And so they'll go and they'll sort of investigate the hive, the 
the little sentinel wasps. Scouts. Yeah. The scouts. And what the honeybees will do is they will congregate if they detect one of these fo- uh, like oh, uh, non-related spies. individuals, a spy, as a scout. They will surround it. They'll try to surround it, and they'll all start shivering. I've seen that. And they heat it up. They bake it, but they're shivering. They, yeah, and the kill temperature of a honeybee is like 119 degrees, and then for the wasp, it's 118 degrees. And so, one degree, they have one degree margin yeah, of error. So, so, this is something, uh, this is cool because this is a behavior that is a specific adaptation to a specific type of predation. And so, this is an example of a symbiosis where, uh, one organism has evolved adaptations for exploiting a resource, the honeybees, and the other has evolved an adaptation for coping with that potential predation, and that's the shivering defense. So wow. it's kind of cool. So it's uh, humans, we have like a generic response. This is like when you look at symptoms for different ailments, there's so much overlap because our body only has so many different strategies for trying to rid ourselves of a pathogen okay so we've got we have these different strategies on where you feed um and then uh we can also look at parasites as being either specialists or generalists and this isn't something that's exclusive to uh parasites but this is a way in which we can think about organisms so organisms might specialize in a type of behavior or they might be more of a generalist with that type of behavior. So um, when we talk about generalists with parasites, these are species that don't have, they're not host specific. So they can parasitize a bunch of different things. Uh, Typically, the things that they're parasitizing are all related generally. So take, for example, mussels. Uh, So some mussels, not all, but some have a parasitic life stage. Um, and it's in the sort of larval stage in this form called the glochidia. And the glochidia look like these little steel traps that will latch on to the gills of fish. So um, there are a bunch of different mechanisms for dispersing these. Uh, there actually, there's an eastern elliptia, which is super cool because part of the internal structure, the mantle of the adult form of the mollusk, it actually looks super, super similar to these tiny little minnows. And so predatory fish will come along and they'll see this little fish-like thing and it kind of wags about in the water. So it has movement, it has the physical appearance. Uh, And then once the predatory fish, like a bass, comes up, the uh, muscle will slam shut and it'll squirt out um, all of these little glochidia, so the hatched eggs. And as it's uh, as it erupts out from the muscle, then the fish will take it in and the glochidia will get uh, will latch on to the gills. So a lot of these mussel species uh, in their parasitic form are generalists. So this is super great to be a generalist on a fish if you are a habitat generalist because uh, different fish are going to have different types of niches that they inhabit. And so once they go from the mussel to somewhere else in the waterway, they might be going to a spot that's different uh, ecologically from where the adult mussel is. So if you're a generalist as an adult mussel, and the fish brings you to a different spot, then you could still be pretty well off because that habitat will also be suitable. Um, there's a type of mussel called the river pearl mussel, and they actually do form tiny little pearls. 
tourists. Uh, so they're native on both sides of the Atlantic to um, here in the in North America to the Northeast. And they are total specialists as adults in what they want for habitat. So they're living in clean, fast-flowing rivers, uh, smaller creeks. And so what they want in a parasitic host is they definitely want to have something that shares that habitat preference. And so they are parasitizing almost exclusively brown trout, which share those same habitat preferences of wanting these clean, clear, fast-flowing uh, creeks and, and rivers. The advantage of being a generalist is that if one of your food sources disappears, you have others that you can just jump to, and uh, you'll be fine feeding on a different host. Whereas if you're that river pearl and your brown trouts go extinct in that region, then your population of river pearl uh, mussels is also going to crash. Yeah, I do this because I can survive on both hot dogs and sausage. If something goes wrong <laughs> with the hot dog farms, I just go to the sausage factories. Easy peasy. <laughs> but that's just me. I'm a generalist. Yeah. I'm kidding, by the way. I don't actually eat hot dogs. Oh, there's nothing wrong with eating hot dogs. So, I mean, the advantage of being a, a specialist is you can be really good at exploiting one resource. The disadvantage is the advantage of being a generalist. So if you're a specialist and your host uh, goes extinct um, or has a local extinction event, then you no longer have a food resource that you can used to supply your body with biomass you almost can't be too powerful so if you're a generalist you could be very powerful and kill off a few of your hosts you know you still got other ones you can exploit but if you're a specialist you can't be too powerful you have to limit your own power yeah exactly yeah i guess i didn't mention this earlier but there are more species of parasites than there are of non-parasites and it's parasites outnumber non-parasites yeah by in like... terms of Two to species one. Species or in terms of like mass? Species. Okay. And also, uh, well, I don't know about biomass. Definitely in terms of species. With biomass, because they are smaller and reliant on a host that they feed on, so they're one trophic level up. So right, you would think that's impossible. When you go up a trophic level, there are less, uh, there's less energy available to you. So depending on whether it's like a warm-blooded or cold-blooded ecosystem, it's either 10 or 20% up a trophic level for the predators than there are for the prey. So probably, or the biomass of parasites would be lower than of the biomass okay. for hosts. That's good. Yeah. So an example of a, a specialist, there are tons of different ones. Um, one that I am interested in right now is just because uh, it's springtime, and so we have all of these leaves that are just now emerging on trees. And so as a tree is developing new leaves, it's a great time for parasites to lay eggs inside the leaves because then the leaves that are still actively uh, undergoing cell division or mitosis, uh, the parasite can co-opt mitosis for its own benefit. So there are a bunch of different species of gall insects or gall-producing plant, uh, gall-producing parasites. And so one of them, their great name, hackberry nipple gall. Um, and <laughs> this is a, a type of uh, plant lice. Uh, Interesting or... Halloween costume choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could go as matching hackberry nipple galls. <laughs> one of us could be the host and one could be the prey. <laughs> we'll fight over that later. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll decide that by coin flip. Yeah, the type of psyllid, uh, which again is this 
the plant lice that are related to aphids or scales, which I mentioned earlier, scales and aphids both have sucking mouth parts. So they're feeding on the sap of the plant. So most of the parasites we've talked about so far are parasites that are parasitizing other animals. Um, but there are a bunch of parasites that parasitize plants. And they specialize in hackberry. And so they'll lay their eggs in the early spring as the leaves are developing. And again, it co-ops the uh, cell division and the plant will produce this gall on the leaf that look like these sort of warty little nipples. Yes. Aptly named. And yeah, and so then the, the developing larva will live inside of this little safe cocoon little and holes. feed on the leaf nutrients and then eventually will emerge out of the gall. And there are a bunch of others, like there's uh, maple gall mites. There, yeah, goldenrod gall flies that are not in the leaves, but in the stems of goldenrods. So there are tons of different examples of these uh, that specialize in maybe a single species. Are there examples of humans producing galls for some for their own sinister purposes or benevolent purposes? I don't know what messing with a plant in a way that produces a gall that we use in some way. That's a good question. There is corn smut, which Yikes. I I don't watch that myself, but I hear. Yeah, I'm not judging. <laughs> well, you know, everybody's uh, you know on self quarantine, and you got to entertain yourself somehow. Quarantine. So corn smut, right? Is uh, yeah, yeah, summer's approaching. Corn plants are getting taller. Corn Might maze. Well... <laughs> yeah, you get wanna, a little corn smut. Be able to take advantage of the corn maze. So corn smut is a type of fungus, and it uh, it has its fruiting body on corn, and it's its delicacy. And uh, yeah, so humans will. I don't know if it's like cultivated or just harvested. Um, I'm trying to think if there are galls that are beneficial to humans in some way. Yeah, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Decorative. We like to race the little goldenrod galls and they make nice boats. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of fungi are parasitic. So a lot of them are decomposers. But if you're decomposing wood or um, plant material, then you can do that when the organism dies because a lot of its chemical defenses are shut down, the production of those. But if you can do it while something is alive, you have access to a plant that is regenerating more tissue year Bringing after year. Bringing in more energy for you. Yeah, it's helping you out. Yeah, so, uh, uh, I mean, humans harvest mushrooms that live on living trees all the time. So chaga is a great example. That's not something that's being cultivated by humans but it's something that's harvested by humans. So there are definitely parasites that we find helpful. There are, uh, so lobster fungi, which are an edible type of fungus, they are parasite parasites of different types of mushrooms. So they create this sort of exoskeleton or exostructure that envelops the fruiting body of different types of russulas. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and humans eat the lobster fungi. So that's maybe an example. A fungi that preys on other fungi. Yeah. Which must happen more than we yeah. can imagine. They're not all just buddies. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. I'm curious, too. Do you have a favorite a favorite parasite in terms of, um, I suppose, its graphicness or entertainment value that our <laughs> listeners might want to hear about? Not one you've had yourself. I just mean a species of parasite has such an unusual mechanism that everyone should know about it, really. I love I love talking about parasites in my wildlife ecology class because I love just looking out at the students and watching their faces <laughs> cringe. <laughs> and so I feel like maybe the more cringeworthy the parasite, the more attracted I am to it, or at least right. uh, understanding it. 
What's one of the maximum maximum cringeworthy? Uh, I think pinworms are are pretty fascinating. Parasites have well, there are a bunch of different ways that parasites exploit the behaviors of their host to get the host to do something that they want the host to do. So pinworms are a cool example of this. So pinworms are an internal parasite, an endoparasite in humans, and uh, they live at the end of the digestive tract, which is right near your anus. And so they're getting the last of the nutrients that pass through your intestines. And uh, the uh, adults will sort of I don't know what you would call the movement pattern. They would slither, they would crawl, creep, ooze, whatever, their way out of your anus. Uh, and they stay partly anchored inside so that they can't be pulled out. And the female will sort of emerge partway out of the anus and then lay eggs around the the rim of your anus. And then I don't know if it's the eggs or if the female deposits like a some sort of secretion uh, but whatever it is it creates this sort of intense ferocious itch on your anus so they do this at night when you're sleeping so you have sort of this like subconscious desire to just scratch your butt Um, and so as you're doing this you're scratching and the eggs that are laid around the rim of your anus they get stuck in under uh, like in your nail beds Um, (laughs) and then you wake up in the morning you have no idea I mean you slept pretty poorly so you have some idea that something's going on Um, but then in uh, so a lot of parasites can just be uh, sort of gotten rid of by good hygiene. But if you wake up in the morning and you have breakfast and you haven't washed your hands, you have all of the pinworm eggs underneath your your you fingernails might pass or maybe to your friends or family or enemies potentially. Yeah, you're you're a great guy, Glenn, and you decide to make an omelet for me in the morning, <laughs> and uh, you crack <laughs> the eggs and some of the yolk gets on your fingernails and drag some of those eggs into the omelet. Maybe you don't cook it well enough. And then I eat it and I now would ingest pinworms and they want to live in a digestive tract. So the idea is to get from one suitable environment to another suitable environment. Um, And so having this way of manipulating the behavior of the host is an effective way of transporting. Sometimes the host just winds up back in the same host. So you can have this sort of never ending cycle of pinworm if you're not good at hygiene. But it can also be a way of transferring from one host to another. I guess my main question is, for my son's point of view, for a class project, would this be a better diorama or animation? Yeah, it might be a really fascinating interpretive dance also. I feel like that <laughs> could really yeah, generate some oohs and ahs. What a song. Some musical interpretation. It's a song my son made up. After listening to the Beatles one night, we are playing a game. And somehow nematodes came up. So instead of Nowhere Man, it became replaced with Nematode. He's a real Nematode, sitting on his poopy load. Isn't he a bit like you and me? And we sing that sometimes <laughs> and laugh and laugh. Feel free to sing that. I sure will. Sun Teak. All right. No charge. Um, maybe we just found ourselves a new uh, theme song. <laughs> there also, there's like a whole host of castrator parasites. And uh, these are... Did you say castrator? Castrator. Yeah, so they're sort of these interesting uh, versions, or it's an interesting life strategy of a parasite where this is cropped up in a bunch of different lineages. So it's evolved multiple times. There is a, a type of barnacle that's parasitic in its adult life stage. So the larval form 
the only reason that uh, researchers discovered that it was a barnacle at all is because the larval form is similar to with other uh, with other types of barnacles. With the adults, though, that are parasitic, they parasitize crabs and a bunch of different crabs, but they primarily go after green crabs. And so the adults, they're either male or female, and uh, they'll parasitize uh, both male and female adult crabs, but they they prefer female crabs, or at least crabs that behave like females. So they have a pretty cool uh, reproductive strategy. So what the adults do is they'll latch onto the outer carapace uh, or exoskeleton, the shell of a crab, and they'll find a little weak point in the shell, and then they'll send these sort of dendritic or root-like structures into the internal structure of the crab. And for female barnacles, uh, the external structure will turn into this sort of inflated sack that mimics the eggs of uh, that female crabs will carry around. So the barnacle sends in these little tendrils into the uh, inside of the crab, and um, so they'll slowly siphon off nutrients from the digestive system of the crab, but they'll also destroy the gonads. So whether it's a female crab or a male crab, the barnacle will destroy the gonads. And then on male crabs, the end result of that is that the um, uh, that the crab actually starts to morphologically change. So it changes the hormonal concentration internally for the crab. And so its appearance starts to become more feminized. And it also takes on the behavior patterns of uh, a female green crab or whatever other species it, uh, of crab it's parasitizing. So the advantage for the barnacle is that the female barnacles, again, they have this dendritic structure internally to the crab for feeding, but then they have this inflated sac on the outside that mimics eggs of the crabs. So the crabs that either they are female or behaviorally they act female, um, they will spend a lot of time grooming the area where the inflated sac is as though they had eggs. And then when they're ready to release those, uh, they're, you know, continually, um, when the barnacle is ready to release those, the crab, which is grooming and mixing up the water right around there, the mixing up of that water uh, actually helps disperse out the eggs uh, from this inflated sac. So the advantage here for the barnacle is that uh, typically a crab is going to be spending energy on producing gonads and also energy on the behaviors involved with reproduction. But if you can cut that out of the mix, then the crab is just going to be spending those energy or is just going to be allocating energy resources into feeding. Um, it's not going to be allocating energy to reproduction. So all of that food that the crab is ingesting can then just get siphoned away to the barnacle host. So it's a pretty devious little strategy there. Again, I want to make it clear this is not something humans should think about at an Airbnb with their Airbnb host. <laughs> Go ahead. Nobody's suggesting that. <laughs> yeah, please, I just want it just for liability reasons. Yeah, I think Airbnb, which sponsors this podcast, is probably going <laughs> to revoke their sponsors. sponsorship. It's a lot of hosts. So yeah. In general, don't be a parasite. The Single Acorn Podcast is a member of the Airbnb <laughs> network. <laughs> no longer. I, I've heard, though. Yes, I've heard. I've heard about these womb creating or brood patch creating or something like that. I think uh, when, as soon as you said that, my my head skipped ahead to sort of the the last part of uh, parasitism that I wanted to talk about, which uh, is forms or things that are akin to parasitism that don't meet the definition because they're not 
about slowly feeding off of a host organism for like a parasitoids? Of time. Parasitoids? Are we getting there? Not even parasitoids, because parasitoids are slowly feeding on the host also, but there are a bunch of other things that uh, use the word parasitism. So again, parasitism in the basic terms of symbiosis is around exploitation. So one species is, uh, it benefits, so it's has a positive impact, and the other species is harmed, so it has a negative impact. We'll talk about predation next, which is uh, a different form of this symbiosis, um, but there are other forms of sort of analogous behaviors to parasitism where one species benefits and the other is negatively impacted but uh the the host doesn't die in the end so this is basically behavioral parasitism rather than a food resource parasitism so there are a few different types of this so one is kleptoparasitism so any guesses what kleptoparasitism might mean i know because i I went through a small kleptomaniac phase while I was in the service industry. So I tried to get that all out at once. <laughs> I would eat people's food, steal their possessions. Yeah, we already talked about this. You were skimming stuff off the top. Yeah, I would skim their food, maybe take their purse or wallet. I was a terrible waiter. So kleptoparasitism might, might have something to do with stealing. Although for some reason I thought that was birds laying eggs and other nest was a form of kleptoparasitism. Maybe that's not. That's that's brood parasitism. Brood parasitism. Yeah, where you're parasitizing the brood. So you're taking advantage. So a brood is like a clutch or um, the uh, a group of eggs that's laid at a single time in a nest. Right. When I would steal things, I would brood afterwards, which is probably why I made that mistake. Yeah. So kleptoparasitism would be stealing, stealing resources from another species, right? Yeah, exactly. Symbioses are relationships across species lines, but there are sort of similar setups within a, a, species. a species. So an intraspecific relationship that can mirror a symbiotic relationship. So uh, one of them would be like a, a intraspecific parasitism would be with their sexual parasitism. And so this is with anglerfish where males and females look completely different. The males are these these tiny, tiny little parasites, ectoparasites. They live on the outside of the them. females. Yes. And basically they become uh, a digestive tract. Organs, and, right? oh. Yeah, and then uh, that disappears and they become gonads. And mm. th part of this is they live in the deep ocean where there's no real structure to the environment. So they're not congregating around a single resource. They're just kind of moving blindly. And so if a male encounters a female... It might be the only time in its life that it encounters a female, so it would behoove it to either stay close by or to become this sort of ectoparasite on them. Ectogonad. Yeah, so with uh, back to kleptoparasitism, where we have this example of an intraspecific, so within the species type of parasitism, there are species that will uh, cache or store food. And if you're storing your food in large quantities, then that food becomes a resource that could easily be stolen by other things. So some species that cache are crows and uh, gray squirrels. Red squirrels will also do this. Um, and both crows and gray squirrels will do what's called false caching, where I watch this squirrel in my backyard, and it's so ridiculous because I'm smarter than squirrels, I'd like to think, so I can watch this <laughs> and realize how ridiculous it is, but other squirrels are maybe more fooled by uh, sleight of hand. <laughs> so there's a squirrel running around with an acorn in its mouth and it would hop around and then it would, it was like hopping slowly and then it would stop and 
it would make a big deal of digging the earth up and then pretended like it was putting the acorn down in the ground and then it would grab these leaves and make a ruckus and pack them down <laughs> into the hole and then it would look around but it would look around with the acorn still in its mouth <laughs> and then it would hop off and it would do it another time and it did this with each acorn it probably did it two or three different times in my backyard and then if another squirrel comes along and it just watched this behavior and it thought oh it just hid an acorn right there right next to the garden gnome i'm gonna go sneak in and steal its food if you go sneak in and you know exactly where it buried the food and you go and there's nothing there and then you go to the next spot and you're like wait it definitely was here and you keep getting skunked you're just gonna lose you're gonna think that that original squirrel was a complete moron (laughs) right and so you're never gonna you're gonna stop stealing squirrels might not be quite that smart um, but false caching is a good deterrent for theft, this kleptoparasitism. Uh, crows are definitely good at this. And so they'll do this false caching, and then other crows will stop trying to steal food from that crow. Yeah, if false they, caching. If they yeah. discover a bunch of these empty caches. It's like when I go out a lot of times, I pretend to bury hidden treasure in the backyard, just in case there's some treasure hunters around. That happen to be watching you. And then when I really need to bury one, hmm, well, no. <laughs> I wonder if the squirrels ever, I mean, it seems possible that they would then sometimes, the next level, actually bury an acorn, but then pretend to have one in their mouth afterwards, like, puff up their cheeks, and then (laughs) they, like, squirrels like, oh, look, it's still got the acorn. Maybe for just a good practical joke. Might be the next stage of their symbiotic evolution. Yeah. Interspecific. Yeah, so other forms of behavioral parasitism, we mentioned brood parasites uh, briefly, and so do you want to explain what that is well i believe the standard story i hear is that there are birds for example cowbirds which i believe were called cowbirds because they would follow around big herds of bison maybe and they didn't have time to stop and lay a nest they were feeding on insects and the like that were um sort of scared and frightened by the trampling bison or cattle so they would just lay their eggs in another bird's nest and hope that the other birds would raise their own little eggs and not notice. And there's some comical pictures of, of, you know, relatively giant cowbird babies being fed by some tiny bird. They just can't figure out. They think that maybe they can <laughs> yeah. made a super <laughs> They're baby. like, I did it. <laughs> and their maternal instinct or paternal instinct is so strong. Look, this one's going to be so strong. Yeah. But it's not even. It's a cowbird. Um, that's one example I've heard of. It might be inaccurate, though, because I, I get most of my information, you know, from questionable websites. Yeah, exactly. So these guys are, uh, they're brood parasites, and so they do lay their eggs in a whole bunch of different uh, species of birds. So over 100 different species have been recorded with cowbird eggs inside them. And it seems strange, but birds are not adapted, I guess, to recognizing their own young because they build their own nests. So probably it's not a common strategy to be a brood parasite so most species haven't evolved um the ability to recognize cowbird eggs goldfinches one of the reasons potentially that they nest so late is to push past the cowbird nesting season so they avoid this form of parasitism um so uh another form of behavioral parasitism is uh social parasites and so social parasites are parasites that exploit social species so ants and bees um and they tend to they mimic the morphology so the appearance of their host so uh there are types of spiders you probably have seen their 
their egg sacs. So their egg sacs are these shiny, either silver or red. They're probably about the the width of a pencil um, in in cross section, <laughs> not the long way. Uh, and they're these sort of glossy little sheets that are laid either on the bark of trees or on rocks. And yeah, they're common all over. And those are the egg uh, casings of a an ant mimic, which is a type of spider. And they look really, really, really similar to ants. And so what they'll do is they'll invade an ant colony and they look like the ant uh, and they'll kind of behave like the ant, but they slowly feed on the colony of ants. So they're slowly whittling down the ant colony um, as they feed on them. It's horrible. Totally. Yet ingenious. Yeah. A bit of the Trojan horse system. Yeah. Great. Well, um, yeah, we'll end there. And then uh, next time when we're back, we will talk about uh, another form of exploitation. We'll talk about predation. So until then, thanks for joining us and we'll see you out there. Bye. Thanks for joining us, fellow naturalists. That wraps up part four in our six part series on symbiosis. But things only get bleaker from here on out. So buckle up. We look next at the other, shall we say, more terminable form of exploitation, predation. Less cringe, but way more blood, so stay tuned. And episodes drop every fortnight, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to crowspath.org for your natural history fix, archived episodes, online programming, and lots more. Until then, engage your curiosity, discover your world, and we'll see you soon on The Single Acorn.